Pastor Mai, good afternoon. You're listening to Perspective on Manx Radio. I'm Dolan Mercer, here with you until two o'clock. And today, we're looking ahead to one of the biggest days in the calendar of the Isle of Man. Friday the 5th of June is the island's official National Day, where Parliament meets at St John's, instead of its usual home in Douglas. In the open air, the public can watch on as all bills that have received royal assent are promulgated. Moramai, good morning. Today is the Isle of Man's National Day. It's Tinwald Day, the midsummer sitting of Tinwald Court at St John's, the final stage in the Manx legislative process. But the day, of course, is about much more than just pomp and pageantry. Join us on Mandate for a look ahead at that and much more. As Alex Bell very kindly hinted at for us there, the pomp and pageantry is perhaps the most striking thing about the Tinwald Day ceremony, or at first glance at least. For many, it's definitely the time of year to don your finest threads as you venture down to St John's, even if you aren't involved in the official proceedings. But there's an important political significance on July the 5th, and that is where we will start as the president of Tinwald, Steve Roden, OBE, explained to Manx Radio ahead of last year's occasion. Well, when people think about Tinwald Day and this ceremony, they, they automatically think of the colourful pageant, which of course it is. But despite its ancient origins as a ceremony, it actually has a very important constitutional function that's relevant to today's system of government, and that's the promulgation and the captioning of the acts of Tinwald which have been passed as laws in the previous parliamentary year. And of course, it's the final stage in the Manx legislative process. And unless this happens, takes place on the Hill, the the laws cease to take uh, effect. So we mustn't forget the the parliamentary constitutional function as we enjoy the colourful pageant and the ceremony. And of course, it's uh, an important demonstration of the traditional right of redress that members of the public have, which has been running for many years, to present petitions of grievance to Tinwald, to the clerk of Tinwald, who will then carry that forward. And petitioners, as a result, have the opportunity to change public policy and the law of the Isle of Man as a result of an investigation of their grievance. So that's a historic feature that's unique. Is that the last recourse for members of the public if they feel the representative system hasn't worked for them? Well, of course, uh, we have a system of elected parliamentary representation and members of Tinwald, members of the House of Keys, are there to act on behalf of constituents and take up their problems, grievances and issues. And we have year-round a system of petition to Tinwald. Members of the public don't actually need to wait till Tinwald Day. We brought in two or three years ago a system where a petition can be presented to Tinwald by a member put on the table and can be the subject of debate. What the public are most familiar with, of course, is the open-air procedure on Tinwell Day uh, and to take that opportunity. And we expect anything from half a dozen to a dozen petitions any one year. When you're organising Tinwell Day, I appreciate there's a, there's a committee involved in it, but uh, from, from your personal perspective, what's the most important thing you're trying to do? What, what, what's a successful 
Tim will do. The first important requirement is the weather, and um, by and large we have been very fortunate because as an open air sitting works much better if it's a fine day and the public can come along and see it. But in the planning, it's absolutely essential that we get the, the ceremonial correct, we get the right order of the proceedings, both in the chapel, because the begins with the service of worship, and then the procession to Tinwald Hill where the acts are promulgated and petitions brought, and then the court returns to the royal chapel where the acts are captioned and signed off. So there's quite careful timing involved. We also have the arrival of His Excellency the Governor who inspects the, the Guard of Honour, which is the Royal Navy this year, and the band of the, the Royal Marines will be playing for us, and there's some serious ceremonial before the, the ceremony starts. There's a lot of planning involved for the morning, and we have the Tinwald Ceremony Arrangements Committee, which plans all that throughout the year, as well as the enhancements for the day. And this is the, the bit that the, the public, while they, uh, of course, can come to the grandstand and tickets are available from the information point uh, located next to the Tinwald Fest marquee, and they can buy tickets there for the grandstand. That was President of Tinwald, Steve Roden, there speaking to you and Gorn. By the way, as you heard Mr Roden mention, the weather is of course a crucial component to a successful Timwald day, given the exposed setting. So what can we expect? Neil Young from the Ronaldsway Met Office had a look back at years gone by. It rained in 2015, which uh, isn't that long ago. Um, and uh, the wettest day we've had was 2005 when we had 9.5 millimetres of rain. But saying that, Timwald day generally is a, a very good day. Temperatures, um, highest temperature we had on a Tinwald day was in 2006, that was 26.7, um, followed um, in 1976 by a 24.8 Celsius. 1954 wasn't good though, temperatures only reached 12.8 Celsius. Um, a bright day in 1971 with 15.8 hours of sunshine, um, the maximum um, amount of sunshine we can receive is actually 16 hours, so a... Uh, an absolutely unbroken day of sunshine that day, but the dullest, um, 1998, when we didn't get to see any sunshine at all. As the the, uh, the wettest day was 2005, the last wet Tinwald day was um, 2015, but that was actually the 6th of July. Um, if on the 5th of July it was actually a fine day, if you actually, uh, you know, it doesn't mean a great deal, but if you add the maximum temperature on every Tinwald day to the average sunshine and then well if you do this for every day of the year um, so the maximum temperature the maximum the average sunshine and uh, the rainfall it actually gives Tinwald day as being the best day of the year so um, maybe uh, um, there could Tim be something Tinwald in it is saying something there uh, anyway maybe maybe he remembers back uh, longer than the uh, the, the 40 or 50 years that we do in this office. And you're saying 40 or 50 years. I think a lot of people would be amazed to find out that the coolest Timble Day, you have to go all the way back to 1954. 1954, sort of uh, long before I was about. Long yeah, before me too. A lot of the population was about, I thought. Uh, but I thought um, because we have records from down here since 1946. 
Neil Young from the Met Office there speaking to Howard Kane. And we will, of course, be keeping our fingers tightly crossed for a bright and dry 2019 event. But whatever the weather, members of the public have a heightened political power on the day. And another key component of Tynwald Day is the submission of petitions, as the clerk of Tynwald, Roger Phillips, explained to Sean Cowper. Well, a petition for the redress of grievance is one of the very old pieces of Tynwald procedure, and it's as old as Tynwald Day itself, really. People for many, many years have been enabled to take their petitions to Tynwald and seek some kind of justice for some perceived wrong. Now, what this isn't is a, an appeal against judgments from courts or tribunals or whatever. What it relates to is more a gap in the law or a gap in provision for sections of the community who have a justified grievance and they want Tynwald to do something about it. So very often they're calling for a committee to examine this alleged uh, grievance and then make recommendations, and committees do. Um, What happens is that uh, a member of Tynwald can pick up any petition and get a debate on it, and Tynwald can set up committees, and frequently does, to investigate petitions and then make recommendations, and Tynwald will vote on those and... There, has be, there have been circumstances where the law has been changed as a result. So, for example, last Tuesday in the House of Keys, we had the first reading of the Property Service Charges Amendment Bill 2019, which arose from a select committee that reported on a petition that was brought before Tynwald in 2010. And this is going to sound a bit of a sort of nerdy, uh, rather dull area, but actually, if it affects you, it's not dull or nerdy, but people pay service charges if they live in certain types of accommodation and they can appeal about the level of service charges if it's too high, they're too high. But people who live in freehold accommodation that sometimes have service charges can't. And this is to remedy that situation. It was brought to Tynwald's attention by a petition some time ago and Tynwald will presumably legislate on this issue as a result. And there have been other instances of general public interest, like, for example, the way in which legal aid is given out in divorce cases and so on. Sometimes people feel there isn't an equality of arms between the various parties. So, sadly, that affects quite a lot of people on the island. Um, And it's been something which has been petitioned about, and Tynwald has examined it and reported on it. So those are the kind of things that we look at. Um, I encourage anybody who wants to petition to Tinwald to do so because it's got the great advantage, whatever the result of the petition, um, of bringing their grievance to the public attention. And that's one of the first steps in getting a remedy for some kind of uh, lack of service or lack of provision in the law. So for someone who's in the process at the moment of drafting a petition or is just in the early stages and thinking about it, what should they be doing now? Well, the first thing they should do, I hope, is uh, contact me. And if they want to do that, they can get the contact details from the Tinwald website or look in the phone book and telephone me or write to me or email me. And I will always respond and give advice about uh, how to draft their petition 
what the format it's put in and so on. So at the moment I've got uh, one or two people I'm advising already, but if anybody else has got it in mind to petition, I do encourage them to ensure that there are no procedural difficulties about petitioning. Sometimes people try to petition as a way of appealing against a tribunal judgment or something like that, which is outside the scope of a petition. Uh, and I can give advice to people about how to word things so that it's a general petition about something that affects a wide range of people rather than something that's out of order. So that it's always a good idea just to let me know in advance what the text is so I can vet it in advance. Um, and then, you know, it helps everybody. The example you gave us here, that is from a petition from 2010, so some of these, they can be subject to quite a, a long process. What happens next after someone has submitted a petition? Well, of course, there's there are very often it's the case that there's more than one side to a story. So although we receive petitions, um, a member has to pick up the petition and move that there should be a debate on it and a committee on the petition. And that's the next step, really, to get a committee to examine the allegations in the petition and the, the problem itself is looked at. And routinely, petitioners are called to give evidence, so they get their say, and then other people are called to give evidence, maybe the relevant department, maybe other people, and then the committee will think about the evidence and make its report. And that typically takes a few months. Um, then the report is debated in Tinwald and there are inevitably recommendations which Tinwald may or may not agree with. So the process from petition to the end of a select committee on your petition might take a year, for example, but that is a reflection of the seriousness with which we approach the petitions that are brought before Tinwald. They're examined very closely and people who do petition will get their opportunity to have their say in support of what they've put in their petition. And then we'll see, it depends on the merits as perceived by Tinwald as to what happens next. But as you correctly say, this, this one has led to legislation being put before the branches. It takes time to draft legislation, so it's taken quite a bit of time for this bill to emerge. But that's really because it takes time to draft, and uh, so it's not a swift process, but it is an effective process. And meanwhile, there's lots of scope for publicity if you want to bring something to the public eye. And your colleagues are very quick, as you know, to interview petitioners so that they immediately get their opportunity to talk about their problems uh, to your colleagues and they get quite a lot of publicity straight away from that. We do see more online petitions these days, we see protests outside Tinwald. Is this still the best way of raising your issue and bringing it to the attention of Tinwald members? It's a very good way. Uh, online petitions are really more relevant to a larger jurisdiction than this one um, because everybody knows everybody else or they know somebody who knows you um, and because there's a much closer relationship between elected politicians and those whom they serve here. Everybody knows who their, local, their, T, their MHAs, Ks are. 
in a larger jurisdiction, people wouldn't know their MP and wouldn't feel they could approach them in quite the same way. So there's a greater scope for online activity in a big jurisdiction like the United Kingdom than here. So I think that uh, presenting your petition on Tinwald Day is very effective and it has in many, on many occasions been a very effective part of a public campaign to bring about change of various sorts. So yes, I think it's, um, it's a very venerable uh, institution with a long history and still a vibrant present and a future. Um, it's one mechanism among many that you can use to bring things to the public eye. And just remind us then, where can someone go to find out more information to get their petition together? Um, go onto the Timwald website or go to the phone book and ring up Tinwald itself and talk to me. My door's always open and I am delighted to meet people and talk to them about their planned petitions and make sure, insofar as I can, that the petitions are within the rules and are as likely to be successful as possible. That was the clerk of Tinwald, Roger Phillips, there speaking to Sean Cowper. If you want any further information on petitions for redress, there's a handy document with full explanations of procedure and so on on the Tinwald website. Also a key component of Tinwald Day and something which can make a particular ceremony or year especially memorable is the regular appearance of public protests and demonstrations. And just as many a petition has been submitted to Parliament over the years, many protests have been held too. In fact, last year marked 100 years since one of the biggest and best-known protests the island has ever seen. In fact, the general strike of 1918 was one of the most significant events in the island's social and political history. To mark the centenary, a public lecture was held a couple of days after Timwald Day last year by historian Dr John Callow at the Manx Museum. He told me the seriousness of the strike should not be understated. Well, it came about because essentially the island was on the verge of starvation. If you think it's the, the end of the First World War, there is rationing and food subsidies in England, in Scotland, in Ireland. There isn't on the Isle of Man. The U-boats are biting. Times are tough. Fortunes are being made on the island by the super-rich. But the actual the working classes, the people who work on the farms, widows, ex-servicemen, and even the middle classes, people who would own boarding houses or made money from the tourist industry, are really suffering. The food subsidies are withdrawn and the bakeries begin to close. How's there going to be enough food? How are people going to feed their families? That's what sparks the general strike. And the sort of final straw on the camel's back, I suppose, being a substantial price increase in a, a necessity, I suppose. That's right. Well, the strike was about the nine-penny loaf, and the, the, uh, the subsidy had been withdrawn. It was withdrawn by the governor, uh, Lord Raglan, for purely ideological reasons. He believed in the free market. He didn't want uh, things like the old, pen old age pension to be extended to the Isle. And although the island had a big budgetary surplus because it was providing a lot of uh, necessities for the war effort, this wasn't extended into social welfare. So potatoes were being exported, meatstuffs were being exported, 
because there was no rationing, holidaymakers were seen taking great, you know, lamb chops with them back on the boats uh, to Liverpool. And uh, the islanders themselves were faced with famine. This was very much an island-wide phenomenon, which is pr- pretty unparalleled, I think. Completely unparalleled. What happens in the year before, the trade union movement really comes to the Isle of Man. People begin organising in a, in a way that just hadn't seen before. There are new ideas. If you look at the literary societies here in Douglas, they're all talking about the rights of working people, about socialism for the first time. And this goes right across the island. The workers' union starts from, starts out of nothing, really, as a grassroots organisation. And very soon it has branches flourishing in Ramsey in the north, where it's got two branches, to Port St Mary, where there's a, a women's branch for uh, knit, people in the knitting trade. There's one in Castletown, and there are two in Douglas, including a women-only branch, actually. And um, this is quite contrary to the sort of stereotypical view of the of the the sleepy manxman um the you know the the classic tread the law attitude um not not something that would normally be associated perhaps with the island's culture absolutely not there's very little written about labor history on the isle of man it's almost forgotten about all the things you do get tend to put it in very legalistic very constitutional terms what you have in 1918 is a great agitation a general strike that actually works that puts thousands of people onto the streets you have a coal yard that that is stormed and effectively sacked actually largely by um, a mob comprising women rather than men it's actually the male pickets who uh, hold the women back from uh, dealing out pretty rough justice to the strike breakers so you've got almost a revolutionary situation with respect to the context on the island at mm-hmm. the time, um, thinking about the, to use an example, would be the Manx language mm-hmm. sort of decline over the beginning of the 20th century. So in 1901, there's about 4,500 people on mm-hmm. the census say that they speak Manx. Mm-hmm. By 1921, that's about 900. Mm-hmm. Um, are these things connected? Is, is, this a, is this a sense of discontent, do you feel? The, there's a sense of discontent that comes together in the general strike in July 1918. And it comes from all different sectors of society. You have a pre-existing tradition from the early years of the 20th century, I think very much influenced by some of the things that were were happening in Ireland and Dublin society and the, the Irish literary and cultural revolution that's happening there with people like W.B. Yeats, for instance. And that certainly is a very big theme. I think you're looking at people like T. Brown leading this this revival of poetry and thinking about the language of the Manx past. But on top of that, you've got an overlay of economic discontent and the, the influx of new socialist ideas that come out of come out of Lancashire, actually, the industrial heartland. And a new crop of trade union leaders who come in, Alf Tier, of course, who had a long career, member of the House of Keys, Justice of the Peace, a long career at the forefront of the Manx Labour Party, which is established directly as a result of the general strike. And then the lesser known, Harry Emery, who was probably the first person to have read and certainly the first person to lecture on Marx on the Isle of Man. Looking past the strike then Mm -hmm. what are the sort of long-term implications and long-term results of of this event 
Well, people say that politics doesn't change anything. Sometimes trade union history and labour history is all bound up with the idea of glorious defeats. But the Isle of Man can really pride itself that the centenary of 1918, if it's about anything at all, is about celebrating a genuine victory that improved the lives of the islanders. How did it do this? Well, it established the old age pension. It established the old age pension because income tax came in, which was a fairer way of taxation. If you were rich, you paid more. If you were poor, you paid far less. You had food subsidies that meant the elderly in particular and the very young children weren't literally on the verge of starvation, which they had been at the beginning of 1918 on the island. And then there was the foundation of the cooperative movement, of the trade union movement and a recognisable Manx Labour Party committed to socialist ideals on the island. So they were pretty major contributions and achievements that all happened within about six months. That was historian Dr John Callow there telling us about the Great Strike of 1918. Welcome back. You're listening to Perspective on Manx Radio. Before the break, we heard from Dr John Callow, who spoke about the general strike of 1918, which took place from the 3rd to the 5th of July. And protest at this time of year has become something of a theme, although not all too common. More recently, in 2017, a group calling for changes to the island's abortion laws made a silent protest at the Tinwald Day Ceremony. Here's the full report from Manx Radio's Mandate programme. As you know, it was Tinwald Day yesterday and part of the ceremony was Parliament petition. We've heard from that side. But what about protest? Well, it's uncommon on Tinwald Day, but not unheard of. Individuals and groups have in the past used the very public occasion to raise issues about which they are passionate. Laws criminalising homosexuality were famously thrust into the spotlight in 1991 when a protester appeared in striped pyjamas, suggestive of a concentration camp prisoner. Now, Yesterday, a group of women turned some heads when they walked onto the field at Tinwald Hill dressed as characters from TV show The Handmaid's Tale. Now that it's also a novel by Margaret Atwood currently being serialised, it depicts a class of women used purely for reproductive purposes. Their bodies vessels for babies, very striking stuff. The pro-choice campaigners yesterday wore the costumes from the drama to make a strong, silent visual protest. Howard Kane was there. He spoke to one of them. We're a group uh, calling ourselves Handmaid's IOM and we're representative of The Handmaid's Tale, as Margaret Atwood wrote about, to show how women being subjugated and having their reproductive rights taken away is unfair. And just tell us a bit about the costumes, because you're all in identical costumes. You have white bonnets on, red veils, and then you've also got the red cloaks on as well. Yes, this is representative again from the, the book by Margaret Atwood, The Handmaid's Tale, which is also currently on Channel 4 as a television series. And it's representative of a regime where women became nothing but walking wombs, and that's all they were good for. So... Is it something, obviously you all feel strongly about it, is it something you're hoping today by what you're just going to be standing here, you're hoping people, then, I see you're handing out leaflets, are you? We have small slips with quotes from the book and also just an explanation of why we think that it's important women are given a choice on the Isle of Man and that that choice shouldn't be dependent on how much cash you have, whether you can afford to leave the island to make those reproductive choices. Do you think it's something which 
really needs addressing in the 21st century. It's, it feels like there should be more choice. Are we lagging behind the times? Yes, absolutely. It's completely wrong that we have to make this protest that we have such a restriction of choice on the Isle of Man. We shouldn't be lagging behind when we've been so progressive in so many ways. One of the first countries in the world to give women the vote. One of the longest, obviously the longest parliament. And yet here we are that women do not have the choice of what to do with their own bodies and other people are trying to dictate to them what they can and can't do. You're making a silent protest here today. Are you making any other uh, demonstrations or indeed representations to government? Given the fact that there is already a bill going through at the moment, we obviously aren't making a petition today, but this is certainly something that we support and we feel is very important and we may appear again and it's certainly something we, we will hope to do just to show how we feel about these things. Who actually came up with this concept? Because it's very striking and a very elegant way to make your point. Um, it was something that I had um, considered on the day recently where a religious group felt the need to protest in Douglas in a very public way and a way that was quite upsetting to a number of people. And it just felt that that needed a reaction with nothing against people having their own religious views. Absolutely, that's something that's a personal choice, as is this. What sort of reaction have you been getting so far around uh, the Timble Day today? Lots of people have been taking photographs. We've had some people saying, you know, well done and thank you very much for doing this for us, ladies. So far, we haven't had any negative comments, but that's not to say that they're not happy behind our backs. Obviously, it's quite hard to, um, you know, the idea of these costumes in the wings are quite restrictive and that was designed to subjugate women. So obviously we can't necessarily hear everything that's happening around us. Well, there has been a mixed bag of comments, I think it's fair to say. Alex, there's been some positive and some negative uh, for this uh, this group, and uh, you've got a flavour of them. A mixed bag, James, yeah, as you'd expect. Maureen's been on touch on Facebook, says not a lot of visual impact made by the silent protesters. If no one knew what they were doing, well, Emma replied and said, well, people are talking about it now, so obviously that's the point, isn't it? Margaret says it looked like a, a team from Star Wars. <laughs> Uh, Fiona says, I must admit, she felt slightly intimidated by them as uh, she didn't understand their purpose. She noticed them, took slips of paper from them, and uh, many read it, she says. Many shook their heads. That was Manx Radio's report from the Handmaids at Tinwall Day in 2017. The perspective team did, of course, run a full timeline on debate around abortion law reform on the Isle of Man. You can listen again to that episode as a podcast on the Manx Radio website. Another very famous Tinwald Day protest took place in 1991 when campaigners sought to challenge Manx laws criminalising homosexuality, a protest which would prove successful as the law was changed the following year. Alan Shea was at the centre of those demonstrations and his iconic pyjama jacket and trousers worn on the day are now on display at the Manx Museum. Bought from Marks and Spencer in Douglas, they were painted with grey and black stripes to resemble a Nazi concentration camp uniform. Shea, after presenting his petition of grievance on Tinwald Hill, was drawing parallels with the Nazi persecution of homosexuals. His protest then still resonates today. This report from December last year. Someone has got to apologise. That's the plea from one of the island's most prominent gay rights campaigners, Alan Shea. 
Mr Shea, who's known for his Timwell Day protest in 1991, which led to the decriminalisation of homosexuality on the Isle of Man, is calling for the pardoning of those who still have a criminal record from the now outdated law. In light of a public consultation into the shake-up of the Sexual Offences Bill, one proposal from the Department of Home Affairs is to do just that. However, with the potential reform on the way, it is the relatives of those who have took their own lives as a result of what he says were, were threats, intimidation and blackmail by the island's police at the time. It's in the, they who Mr Shea believes are the most deserving of an apology. He spoke to Aaron Ibanez. We sent a letter to, to the police, to Chief Constable of the Police, asking for an apology for what the police did in those days, hunting gays for sport, because however I look at it, it was sport. They were getting stopped on the promenade, they were getting stopped walking through the streets. It was ridiculous behaviour. Specifically, I was harassed, police outside my house, stopping people from coming into my home, was my apology, you know, the chief of police must give an apology, and the uh, the chief minister. These are consecutive people in power. They need to give that apology. What is the scale of those living with a criminal conviction on the Isle of Man? Well, there's quite you know. a few that I know of that have still got this conviction owed against them. I mean, this should have been done a long time ago. This apology should have happened when the UK were doing it and Scotland's done this. And the Isle of Man it seems to be going a bit slower than normal. I'm pleased that it's a clear blessing that's brought this in. And, you know, let's hope the consultation goes well and they get the apology. But my argument still will be, what about the rest of them? You know, the ones that were were arrested, didn't end up in a court. They end up killing themselves because the police threatened to tell their families, their work colleagues. Give them an apology as well. Do you know of anyone else that's sort of took the same route as you and, and has wrote and, and has sought an apology, whether it be from, you know, the, the, the police or perhaps people from government? I mean, I, I sent the letter to the police. Um, the chief constable said it's not up to him to issue an apology. I disagree because the police are consecutive. So my view is that the chief constable at the present takes on whatever the, the, the previous chief constable, the responsibilities of those other chief constables. So in my view they must apologise. But then there would be one argument, wouldn't there, that they they simply follow the law and it's the lawmaker's responsibility to apologise. But see, the law, the law of the day is you could be gay, you could have the sexual act. So my argument is then when people walk down the promenade and they're getting harassed by the police, that if you walk along this promenade, we will arrest you. Well, what for? They were outside my home, stopping people from coming to see me. What were they doing? They were getting harassed by the police. I mean, the police can't harass people because they were gay. What does it do to someone's mentality in the 21st century on the Isle of Man to still have a criminal conviction for being well, gay? I do remember someone, you know, contacting us years ago that they wanted to go and live in another country and they found out that because this um, conviction was over their head, they couldn't leave the Isle of Man and go to another country because when they did a police check, it showed up. That's ridiculous. These convictions should be removed because it's it's stopping people from living their lives. In terms of having these convictions removed, you you mentioned about people that have, have took their own lives as a result of this. Would this act as closure for those affected and for families as well? These people, you know, they would be alive now if it wasn't through the police. You know, you don't threaten people and force them to 
kill themselves. You know, these people would be alive now if the police, you know, didn't do what they did. The victims that are not here, who were arrested, questioned, threatened to say that we're going to inform your families, your workhouse, they leave that building, they kill themselves. So what's got to apologise? That was Alan Shea speaking to Aaron Ibanez in December last year. And following that, Aaron then spoke to former Chief Minister Alan Bell in January of this year. Now, it would seem in light of new proposals by the Department of Home Affairs, a sense of closure and atonement could finally be due for members of the island's gay community. Potential reform to the Sexual Offences Bill could see an automatic pardon for homosexuals who were deemed criminals under what is now outdated law. In support of not only the removal of such convictions but a police apology is former Chief Minister Alan Bell. Mr Bell, who during his political career championed gay rights on the island, helped force through the decriminalisation of homosexuality in 1992 and more recently oversaw the passage of the same-sex marriage bill just three years ago. Although uh, this, uh, in his words, uh, brought us in up to international standards, it would appear that the UK's so-called Turing Law of 2017, the island, is once again playing catch-up. Aaron Ibanez spoke to Mr Bell, who began by asking him whether a proposal of pardoning those still with a criminal record had been considered whilst he was in government. We were starting to look at it at the end of, of the last administration. Uh, the Minister of Home Affairs at the time uh, had raised the issue and it was something, I think, which was on the agenda. But uh, at that point, I think, with trying to get through, uh, the, first of all, the civil partnership and latterly the uh, gay marriage, uh, that was deemed to be a, a higher, higher priority. And, of course, subsequently, we've been overtaken by events in the United Kingdom where they now have uh, agreed to uh, pardon historic convictions in uh, all parts of the United Kingdom now. And I think there are something like 50,000 uh, convictions now in various stages of being reviewed as a result of that. So the issue has only really become current in the last couple of years. And so I think it's it's appropriate now that the Alaman uh, should take notice of what's happening elsewhere uh, and realise if we really want to draw a line under uh, the unpleasant history of, of this matter to take major steps to heal the divisions which existed and have been driven into the community, now is, is the, exactly the right time to bring in this legislation and uh, to um, pardon those people who were convicted. And I think many of them would actually like uh, an apology from government and in particular from the police for the actions which went on in the past, which have caused serious problems to their lives and indeed their families. So notions of of a pardon and apology is completely separate in in this instance, because I imagine the the pardon on the proposal for the legislation would wipe clean the, the, the criminal record. And I believe that if there was going to be an apology, it would be considered by the Council of Ministers. Is, is, that, is that right? Yes. Uh, the Council of Ministers obviously would, would need to make uh, the ultimate decision on, on what to do about this. Uh, I understand the Chief Constable is very sympathetic towards this, this position and uh, was obviously aware of the police role over the years uh, in bringing about many of these convictions. Um, I would hope that the, uh, the current Council of Ministers... Um, would step back and look at the history of this uh, situation and recognise that a wrong was done to the gay community, a serious wrong, which has destroyed many, many lives and and disrupted many, many families over the years. And therefore, it's absolutely appropriate now uh, in the the climate of of, um, coming together and forgiveness 
uh, we see in the United Kingdom and elsewhere, over this matter anyway, uh, and that the elder man should follow suit. And what do you make of Mr Shea's accusations against the police, um, saying that they harassed, threatened and, and blackmailed him as well as others in the community? I think uh, Mr Shea will be referring to the period at the end of the 80s and uh, early 90s, again prior to the decriminalisation, when uh, within the gay community uh, uh, anyway, there was a great deal of fear and concern about the actions of of the police or certain police, and in particular the policies of the Chief Constable of the day, who was uh, a very uh, fundamentalist uh, uh, Chief Constable, having come from Manchester uh, and worked under Mr. Anderton, who was uh, notorious for his policies, uh, it caused a great deal of distress on the island. And um, I think it's fair to say that uh, the actions that were taken at that time led to a number of young people on the island uh, committing suicide and certainly uh, a number of others who were forced to leave the island because they couldn't live in these circumstances. So there was a a feeling of fear and of harassment um, and uh, general oppression, really, coming from the establishment at that time. And uh, I, I think the, all of this needs to be brought together and recognised by the Council of Ministers and uh, an appropriate action be taken to apologise and to um, heal those divisions. That was former Chief Minister Alan Bell there speaking to Aaron Ibanez in January. So, 28 years on from Alan Shea's protests at Tynwald Day, the repercussions of his actions and those of his peers are still being felt. Proof that protest has a purpose, you could say. And as Tynwald President Steve Roden, OBE, said to Manx Radio last year, the protest of today against an injustice can become the mainstream policy of tomorrow when that injustice is rectified. On last year's Tynwald Day, Manx Radio reported another demonstration about another topic which was very much under the political spotlight at the time. In the build-up to Timble Day, we heard from the President Steve Roden and Chief Minister Howard Quayle about how important it was for people to have the right to protest at the ceremony. A former resident of Notfield Children's Home did display a banner. John Guest, who gave evidence to the recent Select Committee on Historic Child Abuse, held aloft a placard calling for justice. Pictured on the banner was his late friend Chris Glover. And the banner was seen by our commentary team very early in proceedings. There seems to be a banner on the back there. I can't read it from there, but it looks like someone's got a protest banner held behind them. I don't know whether you've got better eyes than me. I think the, the words I can make out are towards the bottom of child's victims. So it's a, yeah. clearly a, a protest to it's do with that. It's a protest of some kind, a one man or one woman protest. Can't quite see, but the banner being held clearly in order to get the message across. Uh, doesn't upset proceedings at all. And that's the thing, isn't it? This is what this occasion is all about. Of course, it's all the pomp and ceremony, but But the the right to protest is hugely, hugely important. Um, And as I was walking up here, I uh, noticed a couple of the protesters. So we are expecting at least two or three protesters. There may well be many more uh, who will present their petitions as they have a right to do so. And that is what, what makes this so significant and so unique in many ways. The protester was John Guest, a former resident of Notfield Children's Care Home, and his banner read, Justice for Notfield's Child Abuse Victims. Whether or not we will see public protest at this year's Tynwald Day remains to be seen, with the now regular demonstrations taking place in Douglas relating to the climate emergency. One might expect to see activism of a similar nature on Friday. We'll see. 
Join us again after the one o'clock news. Good afternoon and welcome back to Perspective on Manx Radio. Today we're looking ahead to one of the biggest days in the calendar of the Isle of Man. Friday the 5th of June is the island's official national day where Parliament meets at St John's instead of its usual home in Douglas. Before the one o'clock news we heard from the President of Tinwald, Steve Roden, OBE. We heard from the Clerk of Tinwald, Roger Phillips and we also heard about some of the more notable protests that have taken place on the day over the years. Last year, there were four petitions put to Tinwald. Well, Tinwald Day is unique in that it provides a chance for ordinary members of the public to directly present their representatives with personal grievances. All that is required is that any petition for redress fulfils legal requirements, is deemed unsolvable by any other means and gains support from at least one Tinwald member. This year, four individuals took their issues to the highest court in the land. Let's hear from a few of them now. First, Jed Power. He's a former Manx police officer who wants to see an improved, more independent police complaints procedure, providing oversight for the constabulary. He spoke to Alex Bell after handing his petition in. It was quite nerve-wracking too, um, in front of all those people, but um, it's, uh, I'd say it's a worthy petition to put in and it's asking for... Perhaps some more transparency, um, independent uh, viewpoints for the uh, police complaints process on the Alaman. Has one specific thing prompted you to come forward with this today? I think looking at the uh, legislation and looking at how police complaints are conducted and investigated, I think it demands more of an independent view. So I hope that a select committee, for instance, will be able to look at the facts and look at how police um investigations are conducted when there's misconduct reported and come up with the right balance and perhaps mirror what they do in the UK or Northern Ireland and just give that independent um, angle. And you've seen how this worked. You spent many years in the Isle of Man Constabulary yourself. 
What was the impression you got from being a police officer? Well, it's very difficult because the Alaman has got a very small force and everyone knows each other, a lot of people related to each other. And what I can say is that it's very difficult to be impartial and independent. That's sometimes difficult on the Alaman in many aspects of what we do. So I think it just needs a, a review and we can ask for the uh, Timwald Committee, hopefully, to look at that and look at the facts and look at what is a reasonable answer to this issue. Was there a reluctance from your colleagues and your superiors, I guess, while you were in the force to have such a process, the one you're referring to and calling for today, established? I wouldn't say that. I think um, the constabulary is involved and it's full of good people and it's a great career and I'm very proud of my career and service that I undertook you know, for them. Um, I'd say on a discipline front, um, any reports of misconduct, it's common sense, it's got to be fair, it's got to be open. And was this something that occurred to you before you retired effectively? Because some would say while you were in the force, you had a much better chance of, uh, of getting something changed than you do as an outsider. I'd say that's wrong, um, really. Um, when you're in the force, it, it is quite difficult to um, manage such a scenario. Um, certainly you conduct yourself to the best standards possible. And I think in this instance, it's time that... Um, Police Complaints Commissioner and our constabulary could just perhaps mirror what is undertaken in the UK. Also presenting a petition was Robert Hendry from Ramsey. He isn't satisfied with how the island's social services treat families. Well, it's an area Timwald has explored in some considerable detail before, with a committee making strong recommendations last year. Mr Hendry told Alex uh, change is still necessary, though. Because of the Victoria Columbiae and um, baby P cases, there is a clear need for a social care system because there can be evil, bad parents. Nobody would object to that. But how the system works is crucial. Now, in the Isle of Man, it is very, very obtrusive. It is completely... Um, in England, but thanks to Sir James Munby, the... Um, the president of the family court, there have been dramatic reforms. The Alaman court has completely rejected any sort of reform. Now, this is a subject which has been explored by the Social Affairs Policy Review Committee, I believe. There was lots of dis d debate and discussion going back a couple of years now about the overzealous social care system. And since then, recommendations and conclusions have been implemented by the Department of Health and Social Care. I'm sorry they haven't. Uh, the Department of Social Care is very good at um, agreeing, oh yes, we'll make reforms and then making purely cosmetic reforms. So that, uh, I, I mean, um, should, for example, a child in care be obliged to clean up its own vomit? Are these real cases this that you've heard? This is a real case that I know of. That an eight-year-old child who was sick was compelled to clean up its own vomit. And the foster carer um, uh, has got away with it. What background are you coming from to make these kind of assertions? Uh, I, uh, quite complicated, actually. I trained in law. I, I worked in accountancy and as an analyst and became an author. Where do you hope to get with this? Because it seems like you've lost faith in the Department of Health and Social Care. Do you have faith that your petition will, will make progress where, where others have failed? I, 
I would say it is um, you have to chip away at something and um, I mean let's face it in 1940 when England was um, on the verge of defeat would anybody would, would many people have said there would be victory in 1945 you have just got to keep on plugging away Robert Hendry, well, Trevor Cowan is certainly familiar with the petitioning process. He comes to St John's year on year to seek redress on various personal gripes, handing five separate petitions in on Timwell Day in 2016. Oh yes, I've had a personal gripe for years. I recently put uh, 33 written submissions in on a planning application, but a planning officer decided that uh, I didn't have sufficient interest in, in the application to be afforded interested person status and the planning committee just uh, rubber stamped it. Where are you hoping to get with this this time? Because you've been here before several times now. Um, well I'm hoping one of, maybe one of the new members, new MLCs might pick it up. This is their first Timwell, this is their first experience of, of petitions for address and maybe they'd like to, um, to pick it up and uh, um, I put, put a motion to Timbal to, to form a select committee. You've not had a terrific amount of luck with it so far, though. No, but uh, that, doesn't, that doesn't mean you shouldn't try. What sort of outcome would you like to see, and more crucially, how, how quickly would you like to see it achieved? Well, I'd, I'd like to see it achieved fairly quickly, because everybody who... If, you, if, you, if, if the peaceful enjoyment of your, of your home is affected by the development, surely you should have the right to appeal against that. But at the moment, unless, you, unless a, a planning officer... Uh, consider that you have considered, and the word they use the word consider. Consider that you have sufficient interest in the application to be to uh, be granted interest, interest of person status. Then you don't get it, so you can't appeal. There is a, a government circular which sets out the criteria for determining interest of person status. I satisfied that criteria, but but I was still nevertheless denied interest of person status. And how often are you in contact with the planning office surrounding this? Um, Several hundred times a year, probably. You've made a few enemies up there, I imagine. Probably have, yes, yes. That was Alex Spell there speaking to the authors of petitions submitted on Tinwell Day last year. But the day isn't all about politics. There's a cultural significance to the day, of course, too. In a day of pomp, pageantry and tradition, Culture Vanin shed light on one of the more inconspicuous habits of those attending, the Bolland Bairn. <laughs> Towards away bad spirits and evil things and fairies in some cases or anything that was going to do with chill on you. Traditionally, the best time to, to pull this was on um, E feel you on that the night before um, Tinwald Day or Midsummer's Day as it would be at that point, and you had to pull it up by the roots at midnight. And if you did that, you had the power for the for the whole year. You had a good power for the year. There are a lot of stories about. Uh, about the Bolland Bear. They're not directly about the herb, but they're about a fairy tune known as Bolland Bear. Bolland Bear was the, the name of the great fairy tune, the great elusive fairy tune that every fiddler worth his salt wanted to know, and many seemed to claim um, they had indeed found it. There is, there is a version of, of the story um, when there's a, a farmer well, the shepherd really, who was going out onto the hills with his um, dog, out uh, all day after the sheep, and um, it was getting towards night, and he knew he was going to be stuck up on the hills of an evening. That's not a good place to be, um, not when there's uh, all kinds of uh, strange beings around. Um, so he plucked some ball and burn, 
and he put this in his jacket. He was uh, later than he expected and the dog was running all over the place and uh, he had to pick up the dog in the end. It was so tired, slugging it over his shoulder. And um, off, off he went slowly home. But um, as he was going over a certain part of the hills, he heard some distant music and, and he stopped and he listened and he thought, I must get that tune. That's, that's, that's the best tune I've ever heard. So he went closer to the source of the music and he realised that he'd come across it themselves up there and they were all great fiddlers, the fairy. <laughs> they were dancing and singing and there was this tune and they thought, I'm going to have this. So they didn't know he was there, fortunately. That was probably the protective effects of the herb. And he was listening and thought, I've got this, I'm going to go home and I'm going to learn, I'm going to dazzle everybody with this tune. So silently crept off there, dog still over his shoulder. Dog, don't know how he kept the dog quiet, but must have done. Anyway, he'd not gone too far when uh, he, he thought, right, I'll just see if I can run that tune through my head. And it had gone. So, such was the power of the Bollenbern, the Bollenbern tune. This time back he went. And uh, same spot there, they were all singing and dancing and playing the tunes. And this particular tune, there it was again. And this time he thought, I've, I've got it. So, back he goes again dog back on his shoulder <laughs> he was tired awful um goes further he's nearly home and then again the tune is gone so back he goes a third third time and eventually he gets the tune um and and uh, home he goes just in time for dawn so he'd been out the whole night in pursuit of this this, this tune and his wife was furious with them and um because it was a Sunday and you shouldn't be going home and practicing tunes on a Sunday and especially not a, a fairy tune, I would imagine. There are quite a few stories like that or versions versions of that uh, to be found. And apparently they were um, they were taken from people um, in, who, who, who'd experienced these, these things up on the hills probably in the, in the late 19th century. So there were quite a few recordings of that. So, so watch out. And if you do find yourself on the mountains in the middle of the night and don't know what's happening and you are seduced by a mysterious tune going on make sure you've got some bomb burn on yourself to keep you safe because i don't think that fairies appreciate you pinching their tunes <laughs> Ramayu to our friends at Culture Vannin for that and to Annie Kizik and Phil Gorn. Quick ad break next, don't go away. The Nation Station, Match Radio. Welcome back. You're listening to Perspective on Manx Radio. For the final part of the programme, taking a look at the island's National Day, we'll fast forward to this year's ceremony taking place on Friday. There's a list of esteemed guests scheduled to attend. Several members of the UK Parliament will be here, including the Chief Whip of the Liberal Democrats, plus the Speaker of the Parliament of Iceland and Her Majesty's Attorney General of Jersey, to name just a few. Also joining us in St John's will be the Grenadier Guards, an infantry regiment of the British Army. William King spoke to Captain Johnny Palmer Tomkinson of the Queen's Company 1st Battalion Grenadier Guards, 
to find out a bit more about them ahead of their visit. Johnny, Captain Palmer Tomkinson, would you just tell me to start? I, I've read that the Grenadier Guards started in 1656. Would you be able to give us a sort of a brief history slash some info about the Guards? Absolutely, yeah. So the Grenadier Guards are the senior of the five foot guards regiments that, together with the Household Cavalry, make up the Household Division. We were indeed formed in 1656 in, in Bruges, um, and we actually earned the name of the Grenadier Guards after defeating the French Imperial Grenadiers at Waterloo in 1815. Uh, and it's also there that we, we won the Bearskin Cap, which we will, of course, be wearing on parade uh, when we're in the Isle of Man. So it was originally a, a group of people who were fighting active service. We were formed to protect the king while he was in, in exile in Bruges. So that was the the mm-hmm. origins of the regiment there and uh, where we were the um, King's Royal Regiment of Guards. So we only became the Grenadier Guards uh, in 1815. Right. However, of course, we had, we had our, our origins way before then, back uh, 1656. So as well as parading in more recent times, what else do the Grenadier Guards do today? And what drives people to be a part of it? So uh, the great thing about the Grenadier Guards is that we are dual role. Uh, So first and foremost, we are a light role infantry battalion uh, and therefore have a combat role, of course. Uh, So although we have a company based in in Wellington Barracks in London permanently who carry out ceremonial duty, the battalion itself has only just returned to ceremonial duty this year. So in 2017, uh, we were the spearhead battalion for NATO's very high readiness joint task force. And just last year, in 2018, the battalion was split over three operational tours in Iraq, Afghanistan and South Sudan. Uh, So we will now be on this ceremonial cycle for the next three years. But in order to ensure that our combat is maintained uh, during this cycle, we are due to deploy to Belize later this year for two months of jungle training. So the combat side is is very, very important to us as well. So as a guard, there are many different roles which you have to undertake. Uh, yes. In, in, what, in what capacity, sorry? So you, as well as being someone who goes out on ceremony, you, you also have roles as a, someone for protection and op- operational duties, as you said. Uh, yeah, absolutely. So, uh, so as I said, we, we're a light role infantry battalion, which means that we are... Uh, ready to react to anything that might happen around us. Uh, so, yes, we are on a ceremonial cycle at the moment, but indeed we are ready to react to any other uh, conflict that, that might arise in the future. So you would be mobilised if there was an emergency? Well, battalions work in, in readiness. So over the last three years, yes, we would have been uh, mobilised. And of course, we did our, our op tours last year. And certainly in 2017, when we were on high readiness, we would have been the go-to battalion to react. However, due to the ceremonial role that we're doing at the moment, obviously our readiness is stepped down. Uh, however, yes, we need to maintain combat effectiveness just in case we are called upon. What type of training do the guards have to go through? Is it as gruelling as we hear about in the media? Training is, of course, tough. Um, like we say, if it was easy, then everyone would do it. 
Uh, a guardsman will go to uh, Purbright for his phase one uh, wrong, to Catterick for his phase uh, one training. Uh, and then he will come ideally to Nijmegen Company, which, like I said, is our, is our ceremonial company in London. And that's where he uh, becomes a grenadier, as it were, before then becoming, uh, coming to battalion um, uh, to, to, to join the main bulk of grenadiers. So what sort of attributes would being a grenadier guard require from someone who wanted to go down the route? I'm presuming you've got to be physically fit. Absolutely. Uh, we take fitness very, very seriously. Um, as an infantier, which we are, you need to be fit. We are on our feet a lot. Uh, so fit, strong, determined are all characteristics that we look for. But, but really, uh, our sort of ethos as a family regiment is we look to train in. So uh, we will bring people up to the standard required uh, and expected of a Grenadier Guard. So when you visit the Isle of Man next week for Timwald Day, what will you be doing at the Timwald Ceremony? Uh, so at the Timwald Ceremony, we'll be providing a Guard of Honour. Um, we will then line the processional way up to Timwald Hill before uh, getting in position to send off His Excellency at the end of the ceremony. Um, we'll also be supporting the beat retreat which is the evening before, uh, and we will have a presence at various other events that, that evening. So are there any special preparations for the trip to the Isle of Man? Absolutely. Um, we need to make sure that, that we are ready for it. Uh, so as of Monday, all focus will be on, on the Isle of Man's deployment. Were you at the Trooping the Colour parades last month? Uh, yes, yes, indeed we were. So... Uh, Although the vast majority of the battalion were on parade, it was actually the Queen's Company uh, who provided the escort for the colour on the Queen's birthday parade. Uh, and it's the Queen's Company that will be deploying to the Isle of Man. So both the ensign and the captain of the escort will, will be coming. I was on the troop in a smaller capacity. So uh, as the captain of the Guard of Honour in, in the Isle of Man, this is certainly going to be a highlight of my, my ceremonial duty so far this year. And how does the Timwald ceremony compare to other events such as Trooping the Colour? Well, it's certainly different. And uh, the Timwald ceremony offers us uh, something, something rather unique for us. Uh, it's in an unfamiliar setting. It's not in the usual uh, places. London is obviously the focal point for where we do most of our ceremonial duty. So uh, as a result, and due to the fact that it's slightly different to what we normally do, we are thoroughly looking forward to it uh, and hope that all those watching really enjoy it. So is there a dress rehearsal when you're over here? Yes, uh, so we will have a dress rehearsal on Thursday uh, and we'll be conducting our own rehearsals back in camp uh, in Aldershot beforehand. Have you visited the Isle of Man before? So we uh, visited the Isle of Man for a recce for Timwald Day a few months ago. And it was the first time that I've uh, visited. We were amazingly looked after and had an extremely enjoyable time. Uh, and I think for my part, I was immediately touched by the sort of wonderful sense of national pride and community uh, that, that you have over there. And it was, uh, it's definitely a contagious feeling. Um, and so from us, from our part, we will do everything we can to make Timwald Day as special as possible. Um, and thank you all very much for having us. How long will you be over for? We're going to arrive on Wednesday evening, uh, ready for the rehearsal on Thursday, and then we're going to be staying until 
Sunday morning. So will you be doing anything else whilst you're over here? You mentioned the beach retreat and obviously the Tim Wall ceremony on the 5th of July. Is there anything else you're getting involved with whilst on the island? Uh, yes, so after the rehearsal on Thursday, we're, we're kindly being given a tour of the legislative buildings in Douglas. Uh, and then we're going to visit the Army Cadet Force later that evening. Um, we, we've also got our recruiting team with us, who will have a stand at the, at the south Tuesday. And they're also going to be on Strand Street for the whole of Thursday and Saturday. So, so do please look out for them. Uh, and then rather worryingly on Saturday... We're due to play Douglas Rugby Club, uh, which for us is a, is a pretty daunting prospect. Uh, and I think we, we might be in real trouble there. Yeah, so, you, um, so and then, Sorry. Yeah. No, no, go on. Uh, and then well, I was just going to say, finally, Saturday afternoon, we, we've arranged some downtime for the, for the guys to go and see the, uh, see the island and, um, uh, and relax as a sort of a thank you for... It's been a pretty busy period of work um, and they've done a good job so far, so... Yeah, give them a chance to see the island. Well, we really will be getting our money's worth out of you. Um, so will, will you be looking for new recruits when you're on the island? Because you said you're bringing the recruiting team over. Is is I presume that's why they're coming. Absolutely. I mean, we're, we're always looking for, for any interest. Um, and obviously, the Isle of Man is a perfect opportunity to uh, look at a recruiting pool that we don't normally uh, go to. So we have our recruiting areas, uh, but it would be a waste not to not to take the recruiting team with us to the Isle of Man, um, just in case there is any interest garnered. And they're the, they're the ones that are the best place to answer the questions about the regiment and the process for not just joining the Grenadier Guards, but the Guards as a whole and also the British Army as a whole. And it's not only you guys that are coming, is it? Because the band of the Grenadier Guards are visiting for Timwell Day as well. Yes, indeed. They'll be with us as well. Um, so do you do you work quite a lot with them or is that sort of do you only come together when there is an event such as Timwell Day or other events in the UK? We work a lot with them at the moment in this ceremonial cycle uh, because of clearly Queen's Guards in London, Guard Changes in London. Uh, so we do sort of bump in and out of each other. We, we bump into each other a lot. Um, so, yes, at the moment, we, we are working pretty closely. And, uh, and the relationship we have to an, and ensuring that is a close relationship is, is very important to make a, a ceremony run smoothly. Thank you very much for speaking to us here at Manx Radio. Just finally, what would you say is the best thing about being in the Grenadier Guards? Oh, that's a, that's a tough question. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, there's, a, there's a lot of good things. Uh, and it's... For me, I think it's 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 the regiment, it's the the ethos of the regiment. It's it's not a big regiment. It's a battalion plus one incremental uh, company in London. So we do everything we can to ensure that that family regiment ethos is maintained, uh, and it's it's a sense of pride, and it's a sense of belonging to that regiment that 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 I find is the best thing and the most rewarding thing about being a grenadier. So would you do it all again? All the training and everything. Absolutely. Um, I said that was the last question, but I will ask one more. How long does it take? Yeah. How how long does it take you to polish those boots? Ah, well, it depends how badly you scuff them on the last time you wear them. <laughs> Thank you so very much for speaking to well. us. <laughs> thanks. Yeah, thanks absolute for, pleasure. 
That was Captain Johnny Palmer Tonkinson there of the Grenadier Guards speaking to William King. We look forward to seeing them on Friday and wish them all the very best for their duration of their stay on the island this week. As is the case with every year on Tinwell Day, Manx Radio will be providing full coverage of the event from start to finish in situ from St John's. There will be an hour of contemporary Manx music from 8 until 9, a special Tinwald programme previewing the day's events in full with John Moss as part of the Island Life Specials podcast series. And there will of course be live coverage throughout the day with John Moss also taking the commentary chair throughout proceedings. The day will also see a repeat of William King's award-winning Youth in Politics programme and a reflection on Tinwald Millennium Year 40 years on with Charles Gard. I spoke to Manx Radio's controller of programming and content, Alex Brindley, to get a flavour from behind the scenes as the station gears up for the day. First of all, tell us a bit about when preparation for Timwald Day starts from the point of view of Manx Radio. It sounds cliche, doesn't it, really, that uh, you know we, we start thinking about Timwald Day as soon as we finish doing the last one. But we do, we do have a debrief internally as to what we think worked from a broadcast point of view and uh, from a multimedia point of view last year. And uh, then we, we, we make notes, we put plans in place for the year, um, the year after. And there's various different aspects to our coverage because Timwald Day is not just about uh, the, the ceremony and the, the sort of national pageantry that takes place at St John's. It's also about it being a national day and a national bank holiday as well, which means people listen to the radio differently. They expect different things um, from the radio, not just the coverage of the event from St John's Live, which is quite a, quite a massive undertaking for us, but uh, also the general programming throughout the day because um, there's entertainment involved. There's the kind of programmes that people um, expect on a bank holiday that really we don't normally have the resources to do on a regular basis throughout the year. I suppose as as is the case with TT and with the Festival of Motorcycling, there's a sig- significant more significantly more output to try and cover from the station's point of view and with with basically the same resources it it is really and um interestingly enough we've been discussing it just this morning in a a debrief meeting about the parish walk that these are events that um just suddenly come up in the calendar and suddenly manx radio carries on as normal in the background but we then have to use the same staff and the same resources to come up with the live broadcast from st john's i mean we will be doing um, at the the standard broadcasting of uh, talking to the politicians at the Lichgate uh, ahead of the ceremony and then covering the ceremony itself and all the the pageantry that that, that people expect. A lot of people cannot get to Timwall Day um, themselves. Um, either they're off island or they may be able not to leave their homes. And and it's very important to them that the radio is there. And um, it's not just through the traditional broadcast medium that we feel we should bring it to them. We will be Facebook um, streaming it live um, as well, so people will be able to get a, a flavour of what's happening. And then once all the, the, the pageantry is over in the afternoon, um, we sort of switch a gear, and um, where you've had John Moss bringing you all the, the formal proceedings in the morning. In the afternoon, we've got uh, Christy Dehaven and Judith Lay out on the Fairfield, which, let's be honest, has become um, a staple part of Timwell Day as much as the morning uh, sort of pageantry as well. And um, throughout your, your career in radio, or your, certainly your career at Manx Radio, how's the coverage changed? I mean, you've gone part of the way to answering that already, but what, what sort of significant changes have there been in, in your memory? 
I think, like everywhere else, really, the, the technological change has been huge. You haven't so much noticed it on air. I mean, I mentioned there how we now do multimedia coverage. Um, if you think that the voice appearing out of your speaker is still the same old, same old, it most definitely isn't. The way we actually get the signals from St John's, the way that we actually have uh, radio mics covering the event, um, all of that is very much in the digital age now, um, very different to how it would have been um, when I started about hmm, 15, 17, 16, 18 years ago, whenever it was. Um, but also the coverage that we provide as entertainment outside of that. I mean, this year we've got another episode of IM1, which was very popular last Tim Will Day. Um, we are going to be bringing you uh, a special programme in the evening at six o'clock of Tim Wald Millennium Year, 40 years on, um, because it is 40 years since 1979. And Charles Gard will be producing that, and it's going to be available as a podcast, something that even a couple of years ago we didn't even produce um, podcasts, uh, especially for Tim Wald Day. And um, we're also going to be repeating the William King Youth in Politics programme, which uh, won at the 2019 Young Arias down at the BBC in London. So these are extra programmes that we we put in place that um, may not have been produced many years ago. And it's all wrapped in um, a lot of contemporary Manx music. This is something that has really um, come into its own in, in recent years, is actually having studio quality recordings of local musicians and bands. There's always been a, a great wealth of Manx music, not always available in studio quality. Um, but now, as technology's improved, there's a lot more of it, and Tim Day, we feel, is the place to show it off. These changes, then, are they are they sort of to reflect consumer demands? Do you think people's listening preferences have changed? Yes. I mean, we're in a society now where the the listener is really in control. Um, I, I can give you the, the example when it comes to television, that uh, if you sit there, if you've got Sky or a smart TV, you know for well that you watch what you want to watch. If the BBC says Strictly is on at seven, well, you don't have to watch it at seven. You can watch it when you feel like it. And the same is, goes for radio. Um, we have to take into account that whatever we do, um, people might want to listen to that, but they might want to listen to it when they feel like it. So we have to balance the live broadcast of a key event on our national national day in the morning with the fact that actually some of the programming we're producing people might actually want to go out to the Timwald Fairfield and they might miss IM1 so IM1 will be available as a podcast on the same day that people can listen to at their leisure so we we have to provide a balance you can't give it all to one and not to the other um, so we can't go fully into the wonderful world of podcasting and just say well just shove everything on the internet it's there for you because actually um, people are still very wedded and quite rightfully so in some opinions to the traditional broadcast media as well so it's a balance of both and um, how do listeners give feedback to manx radio and how's that feedback on coverage um dealt with or you know taken we- into account there's various different ways of giving feedback. Um, we love to hear positive feedback. Um, as you can imagine, this day and age, that normally the feedback you get um, is normally when people are unhappy with things. There are ways through our website of actually contacting um, not just um, Manx Radio, but the various different departments. If you're not happy with the music, if you've got something to comment on the news, uh, generally about our programming, you can do it through there. And we are also on social media, which is let's be honest, everywhere now where people can comment instantly. Our social media feeds are moderated and we do appreciate the comments from that. And of course we have um, the standard listener figures as well which show trends in whether people are enjoying our programming or not um, throughout the year as well where those are compiled uh, through the, the industry standard radio. You mentioned the Parish Walk as another another good example, but events like this off-site where you've got lots of different things to try and cover at once, what sorts of challenges does that 
present? Mainly personal challenges, um, quite frankly, for, for the staff, because uh, I think everybody in Manx Radio works here because they have a, a passion for, for radio. And I can't think of anybody within the building who is a nine to fiver who, you know, as soon as nine o'clock um, comes, they'll sit at their desk and at five o'clock, that's it, I'm off, whether I finish my job or not. There are people who work extraordinarily long hours here, mainly because they love um, the, what they're doing and they love working for the national station. And when it comes to doing these extra events, yes, people go above and beyond. Um, you know, Tim Will Day, for, like for anyone else, is, an, is a national bank holiday and uh, we have a team who come to work on a national bank holiday um, covering the event. And th- those are the challenges because people get tired, um, but it's about trying to balance the staff welfare from behind the scenes with ensuring that our audience out there gets what they expect from the national station. One thing which is unique to Tim Will Day, which we've seen a bit in previous years, is about petitions and about protests and about um, kind of the... the the political side of the day obviously um how how easy is it to try and cover these things as they happen because it's quite it's quite an instantaneous process isn't it i think it, it is i feel that you know as the public service broadcaster i mean it says there public service we're serving the public it's in the title um that we should be reflecting people's opinions if they are um, either protesting at timwald or they've got a petition for the redress of grievance at timwald um we should be there and we should be reflecting it and this is where the skill of our team comes in because they they're here to be live broadcasters i mean they know what should go on radio what shouldn't go on radio where the the regulations are etc but um they are there to ask the questions and and not only that, challenge people. Because just because you feel you are protesting about something doesn't mean that the um, we should not challenge you with a question to justify your motives and reasons in the same way that if um, we are questioning members of um, uh, the, the government or politicians, we shouldn't be challenging them and questioning for their reasons. Because if it's, if it's a valid protest or a valid point they're making, they will have the justifications for it. Just finally, um, any particular highlights you're looking forward to this year? I that's very difficult for me to say for on a personal level I I I love anything to do with sort of you know um, pageantry and national days and um, ceremony and things like that I'm I'm a bit of a stickler for nostalgia and and heritage generally so I do love the ceremony in the morning um but I I love the community events in the in the afternoon one of the reasons I love taking part in the parish walk this year is that sense of community which I I really do think you won't find anywhere else in the world that you find here in the Isle of Man and the afternoon fairfield is very much one of those types of events and from Manx Radio's um, broadcasting perspective of course I'm, I'm looking forward to all of it I should do of course <laughs> um, from the schedule point of view um, good answer <laughs> yeah I thought you'd like that um, but um, the, I do look forward to um, I am one in the afternoon because um, doing comedy and drama is something that we we have you know precious few resources to do on Manx Radio it takes a lot of time for people to write this to get together to rehearse it to act it to edit it together these are programs that take a lot of people time um, so we only do them sparingly so i always look forward to programs such as that um, that we can run only on special occasions such as our national day that was manx radio's alex brindley speaking to me about the station's coverage of tinwald day this year you've been listening to perspective garamayu take care